Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode, Why I Love Hate Movie Musicals. This podcast is in response to a question I get quite often from listeners. Is Broadway Nation ever going to focus on movie musicals in addition to stage musicals? Well, today is the day. Of course, I don't really hate any film musicals, and I love quite a few of them. In fact, it was largely old movie musicals from the 30s, 40s, and 50s that I watched on TV when I was a kid back in the 60s and the 70s that made me fall in love with show business in the first place. No doubt because so many of them were backstage musicals set in the worlds of vaudeville, nightclubs, and the bright lights of Broadway. The history of stage and film musicals is of course closely related, and they share many of the same creators and stars, which is no doubt why many historians, books, and podcasts analyze and discuss them together. I, however, see stage musicals and film musicals as being two very different things. What are the main differences between them? I'm thrilled to be joined today by my dear friend and frequent Broadway Nation co-host, Albert Evans, and together we're going to explore and define those differences, and at least for one day, give film musicals some love and maybe a tiny bit of criticism on this podcast. Here we go. Welcome, Albert Evans. Welcome back to Broadway Nation. Thank you. It's good to be here. As we've discussed previously on this podcast, you and I both fell in love with musicals on the Million Dollar Matinee and the Late Late Show when we were kids. I did. It was kind of tough because we only had one main television in our house, and that was in the living room, sort of the family hearth. But when I got into high school, I got my own little TV in my room. It's just a little tiny. It must have been like an 11-inch, maybe even smaller. I used to, of course, watch that till late at night. The problem was there was only one 
channel that actually showed old movies and they had bought their own, you know how they used to just buy a package. So they basically played the same movies over and over. And they did not have a lot of musicals in this package. But of course, they had Friday night horror movies. They had a lot of quasi musicals like Abbott and Costello movies, <laughs> that sort of thing. But I never saw an Astaire Rogers movie until I was almost ready to go to college because they didn't have them. They didn't have the classic mid-century MGM musicals. They had none of that. So it was kind of a mysterious world to me. Now in the Million Dollar Movie, that was the one that showed in the afternoon. They had a two-hour time slot and they would show a movie. But when they showed a musical, in order to fit in the musical and all the commercials they had to show, they would just cut the musical numbers. <laughs> so that was a very odd experience. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that later. What was it about movie musicals that could actually allow you to cut the musical numbers out of them? We'll come back to that in a few minutes. I know in college, you were exposed to a lot of these musicals, especially the big Busby Berkeley movies were part of the college film society, I guess. Yeah, and the big nostalgia craze was going on at this time. This was in the late 60s, early 70s was when I was in college. And yeah, we had a film society that would show those. In the town where I went to college, there actually were television stations who would, in the middle of the night, I'm talking like two or three in the morning, they would sometimes show the Stair Rogers movie, and that's when I first saw them. There may be trouble ahead, but while there's moonlight and music and love and romance, let's face the music and dance. Before the fiddlers have fled Before they ask us to pay the bill And while we still have the chance First one I saw, I remember, was Follow the Fleet. Let's face the music and... And I was just like, oh my God, what have I been missing? Soon we'll be without the moon Humming a different tune I think the idea today of college students all gathering together to watch a black and white movie would be very strange to the students that I teach at the University of Washington, yeah. but it was a new experience at this time. It was, and it was the only way, of course, that you could see these movies. We didn't have video or Blu-ray. We had nothing like that. <laughs> if you wanted to see a movie, you had to stay up and watch it when it was on, or you had to go to the College Film Society, which luckily was usually run by like-minded people, so you would get to see a Busby Berkeley musical. They weren't so big on the mid-century MGM musicals, but they liked the ones that could conceivably be considered as art as like museum art instead of something more contemporary. And Berkeley was being rediscovered at that moment yeah. by all kinds mm -hmm. of cinephiles of various kinds. And so were the Marx Brothers and, you know, all of those 30s vaudevillians, and they frequently appeared in musical movies. So it was all sort of part of one... I guess we were trying to change the world politically and at the same time retreat into a past <laughs> we never knew. And those movies had not been seen since they were released to a great extent. Yeah, a lot of them hadn't. Like W.C. Fields movies had really just been, you know, about to burst into flames because they were a nitrate stock. <laughs> but sometimes they would actually refurbish them and make them watchable again. Of course, in just 16 millimeter prints, but that was all we needed for the film society. 
again, I think it's mind blowing today where we just have access to every movie that was ever made. That really is a digital phenomenon. Yeah, the, the rite of passage that we all grew up with was once a year you could see The Wizard of Oz on television, and that was a big event. And now it's like, yeah, you can see it anytime. You know, you just pull it off the shelf and watch it. Or download it from Amazon yeah. or wherever. Another experience that we share, although we didn't know each other then, was going to especially the Regency Theater in New York, where they would show these movies to a very avid crowd of fans. Mm-hmm. Describe the Regency Theater for people who unfortunately missed it. Well, it was on the west side in the 70s, wasn't it, or the 60s, close to Lincoln Center. And it had a very knowledgeable staff, and they would usually program double bills, double features. And they would usually be thematically consistent, somehow, like two John Crawford movies or two movies about pirates or, you know, whatever. And you would get the big list of that and pour over it during the month and go, oh, we definitely have to go see The Women and some other Joan Crawford movie, you know, some later <laughs> Joan Crawford movie. Or those two Busby Berkeley movies or those yeah. two Fred Astaire movies. And there was, I have to say, there was a great deal of smoke going on <laughs> of all kinds. What kind of smoke, Albert? Well, the balcony <laughs> of the Regency Theater was pretty much pot heaven. And even if you weren't indulging, you would get a secondary high. I remember one time a friend of mine had magic mushrooms. And I had dabbled with that in college, but I hadn't really had any in years. But I thought, oh, that'd be fun. We'll have some mushrooms and go see a double feature of The Wizard of Oz and Meet Me in St. Louis. Because I thought, well, first we'll see The Wizard of Oz. It'll totally freak us out. And then we'll see Meet Me in St. Louis, which, you know, is warm, family, comforting. That will calm us down and bring us back so we can leave the Regency Theater. Well, it happened exactly the opposite. The Wizard of Oz (laughs) barely made an impression at all. And Meet Me in St. Louis seemed like the darkest, most sinister, (laughs) frightening movie I've ever seen. And everyone else kind of had that experience, too. It must have been just about the timing of when we had (laughs) indulged in our little snack. But certainly I've never experienced those two movies since then in the same way. Sometimes you would get surprised at the Regency. And describe the audience at the Regency. Most times I was there, it was full. Yeah, oh, especially, you know, if there was some big star. And to us, the stars of the 30s and 40s were big stars, even though we were like 40 years later. Yeah. They were an enthusiastic audience. They loved seeing something that they had seen already. And they love discovering something new. I remember them being very vocal, almost like a theater audience, in that they would Mm -hmm. laugh and applaud and participate, not in an obnoxious way, but in a way that made the experience very exciting. Yeah, and very respectful. Oh, my God, there's Thelma Ritter. And people would clap and give her a warm hand and start talking (laughs) about, why did she never win an Oscar? And, of course, it was a very gay audience. This was the Upper West Side in the 1970s and the 1980s, which was the center of gay New York to a great extent, besides the village at that point. Yeah, it was the Uptown Village, because rents were cheap at that time in the Upper West Side. Again, something it will be hard for listeners to imagine. Yeah, and it wasn't the only place in town where you could see these. There were places in the village. There were various little art cinemas over by Carnegie Hall. And you would be standing in line, and you'd turn around and go, don't look now, but that's Greta Garbo. (laughs) (laughs) Did that actually happen to you? Yeah, yeah. But we were too polite to say, oh, my God, you're Greta Garbo. (laughs) You know, we just play it cool. She's just here to see the movie. 
like everyone else, but let's care her. So let's talk now about these movie musicals sure. from any era, but certainly from that era. Which are the ones? Let's start with Love. Always good to lead with Love. What are the made-for-film musicals? And by that, I mean the ones that were not adaptations of Broadway shows that you absolutely love and still love to this day. Well, there are movies that I can always watch again. I would say that Singing in the Rain is one, but that's kind of like, duh. You can be obvious here. Some things are classics because they're really that good. I like all the Astaire Rogers movies, even the boring ones. There's just something about that teaming that was so good. I find it hard to like movies when the actors really can't act. That's why I like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. They actually could play their parts. You actually were emotionally involved with them. Whereas for me, an Eleanor Powell movie, I like it when she's dancing, but she could not act. I mean, she really was boring in the scenes. But that's just my own personal response to them. I really like Meet Me in St. Louis because that's a movie where everyone in that film can act. You know, you have Mary Astor. And, well, you have Judy Garland, of course, who was one of the few musical stars who really could tap into something deep and emotional and painful in a happy musical. Right. And it just gave her depth because she had shadows. Whereas like Jane Powell or someone, you just go, oh, that's Jane Powell. She's pretty and she sings nicely. But, you know, hers weren't my favorite movies. I like the Judy Garland movies, not just because I'm gay. <laughs> I think Gene Kelly is really good. And Judy basically taught Gene how to act. So I like the movies that he's in. Back to specific movies. I really do like the Busby Berkeley musicals because no one was ever as good at doing what he did. There were a lot of imitation Busby Berkeley. So we're talking about the Warner Brothers movies, especially the ones from just pre-code. So like 42nd Street, Footlight Parade, Gold Diggers of 33. After that, they got a little repetitious. The budgets got smaller and Busby couldn't really do what it was that he did so well. And they couldn't delve into the racy material that they were delving in those early ones. Right, the early ones really were Depression-era movies where there was something at stake. These chorus girls weren't just like, oh, let's be in a stage show. That'll be fun. It's like, if we don't get a job, we're going to starve. So they would do what chorus girls knew how to do at that time, survive. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. The hidey high and poop do the lullaby of Broadway. The band begins to go to town and everyone goes crazy. You rock by your baby round till everything gets hazy. Hush, a bye, I'll buy you this and that. You'll hear a daddy say, and baby goes home to her flat to sleep all day. Good night, baby. Good night, milkman's on his way. Sleep tight, baby. Sleep tight. Let's call it a day. Listen to the lullaby of old So I like that because that was really rooted, even if sometimes the actors weren't deep, the movies actually had a lot of grit and a lot of reality, and they were unique. There have never been movies like that since. 
I actually like a lot of the Shirley Temple movies, and you wouldn't think so from what I just said, but she was a phenomenon. She actually could act, and she could sing, and she could dance, and the fact that she could do it at such a young age was amazing. Being a songwriter, I like all of those songwriter bio movies, Mm -hmm. which, granted, aren't authentic and they're not really true to life at all. You know, movies like they would tell you the story of Gershwin or the story of Jerome Kern or the story of George M. Cohan. They would even get down to, like, Calmer and Ruby even got a movie, you know. Mm -hmm. But I like those just because you get to hear the songs performed by people who really could perform them and in something resembling the original style. Because it was the 40s and 50s, but everyone remembered the 1920s and 30s. And so they knew how to do this stuff. So a movie like Yankee Doodle Dandy is actually a very good movie. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle do or die. A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam. Born on the 4th of July. I've got a Yankee Doodle sweetheart. She's my Yankee Doodle joy. Yankee Doodle came to London just to ride the ponies. I am that Yankee Doodle boy. Then we get into the Freed Unit, which I know that these are among your favorites. I loved the Common and Green movies. They were Broadway writers, so they brought that New York sass to their screenplays. I think their first breakthrough, I don't know if it was their first movie, was Good News, which, of course, was based on the 1920s stage musical, but might as well have been a new musical from what they did to it. And then, of course, Singing in the Rain, and it's quasi-follow-up successor, Bandwagon, which was also another composer catalog-type movie, so it was Singing in the Rain. So even the worst of those, you're going to get great sets, great technical qualities, great orchestrations. You know, everything's going to be first class, even if the movie itself might be like a Boy Meets Girl-type movie. But usually they had something that lifted them above that. But they were a very family-oriented film studio, so you didn't get a lot of the edge with them. But those three, Good News, Singing in the Rain, and Bandwagon, are always at the top of my list. What about you? What are your favorite? Talk about the Freed Unit, because I know that you're a strong enthusiast. The thing I love about those MGM musicals from what is called the Freed Unit, some people dispute whether there really was a Freed Unit or not, but it Mm. seems to me that there was. He was the producer at MGM, Arthur Freed. He was able to gather all these people together. As MGM was doing anyway, of course, one of their mottos was more stars than there are in heavens. And to a great extent, that was true. They were able to gather together in one place much of the greatest talent that was alive at that time that could do musicals in all capacities. And to me, the ultimate power of the movie musical is the star power and the talent power of these shows, Mm -hmm. even though, as we'll talk about I think they, in content, don't live up to the level of a Broadway musical. They're able to bring forces together that no Broadway show could ever achieve or compete with. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Now the milkman's on his way, it's too late to say goodnight. So good morning, good morning, sunbeams will soon smile through. Good morning, good morning. 
So the Freed Unit during that period of the 1940s and the 1950s just had all those stars on hand to work together and combine them with the greatest choreographers and the greatest songwriters, designers. They were able to bring that level of art and craft that was really above and beyond anything I think that's ever been done. That, of course, is that whole sweep of movies, including some of the ones we've talked about. Wizard of Oz is really at the beginning of the Freed Unit, Singing in the Rain. Many of the Judy Garland movies, many of those great Fred Astaire movies, The Bandwagon, Easter Parade are happening during this period. And I love all of those movies to some extent. And I will watch them. Again, they're on such a level of art and craft. And of course, there are sort of spin-offs of the Freed Unit or, you know, people aspiring to do that. And I would say a movie like White Christmas is aspiring to be a movie like Arthur Freed would have made at MGM and achieves it to a great extent using MGM stars. The Freed Unit is setting a standard at this time that any other studio that's trying to make a musical is aspiring to. They raise the bar for all of the movie musicals from that mid-century period. And I think one thing that's invisible to a lot of people is that MGM had a truly visionary music staff. Their arrangers and orchestrators were allowed to show everything that they could do. They didn't have to hold back. They had Roger Edens, Kay Thompson, people like that. Incredible orchestrators, incredible orchestra. Back in Ohio, where I... extent, whether people realize it or not, defines what an MGM musical is, that it takes you off onto these flights of fantasy with the orchestra and the arrangers and where the songs go and how they're added to and tweaked. And it's astonishing. Broadway Nation will be right back.
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That level of craftsmanship and artistic talent on the music side, on the choreography side, as I said, I don't think anybody will ever be able to achieve that because you won't have all those people working on top of each other in the same building, basically, for the same company and constantly exchanging ideas and information. Like you, I love the Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger movies. That string of movies is truly remarkable. And again, I think it's because they, in a more limited way, gathered together a team to make those movies. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Fred Astaire is having a great deal to do with this, as he would at MGM. What I think people don't always realize is that the dancing stars were at the center of shaping their own numbers. They were at the mm-hmm. center of choreographing them or guiding the choreography for them, how they were going to be designed, how they were going to look. They were producing or at least co-producing to a great extent their own musical numbers in most of these movies. If I seem to scintillate, it's because I've got a date. A date with a package of the good things that come with love. You don't have to ask me. I won't waste your time. But if you should ask me why I feel sublime, I'm stepping out with my baby. Can't go wrong, cause I'm in right. It's for sure, not for maybe, that I'm all dressed up tonight. Fred Astaire, of course, insisted that most of the time he'd be shown a full body image of him. There was not a million cuts and very long takes. So you would know that he did this 
and he did it without a cut for like two and a half minutes and you could see every part of his body and it was perfect so there was not cheating he wanted to be very clear that he was not cheating. Yeah, both he and Kelly were very involved in what the camera work was going to be when they were dancing. Of course, the way we shoot things today is with millions of cuts, and that's sort of the antithesis of what they felt was the most impactful thing to do back in that era. They felt like if you were doing a lot of fast cutting, it was trying to disguise the fact that somebody couldn't really dance. Yeah. Well, and they got the best composers for those movies, too, let's face it. George Hirschman, Jerome Kern, Irving Berlin. It was just everyone wanted to write for them. They did their best work for them because they knew it would be presented beautifully. Basically, the studios, especially MGM, raided Broadway for talent. Part of it had to do with the Depression initially because there was so little work on Broadway. They were able to bring everybody to Hollywood in that era, mostly unhappily, but they still couldn't turn down the money. And then later, money would talk and it would bring the best talent from Broadway, both on the screen and behind the scenes, to make these movies. What's interesting about what both you and I said, before you mentioned the name of any movie, you talked about Judy Garland, you talked about Fred Astaire, you talked yeah. about Gene Kelly. The thing we first say about these movies, the first reference is the stars. And this is a lot like the musical comedies and reviews on Broadway during what I call the Silver Age back in the 20s and the 30s. Those were shows that were all created as star vehicles for many of these same stars. And the entire reason to do the show was as a vehicle for Fred Astaire or Fanny Bryce or Burt Lahr. That was the sole purpose of putting the show together. And the songwriters would come together to create these vehicles. That got sort of transferred to Hollywood. What we love about those movies is that they were primarily star vehicles. And through them, we got to see the greatest musical stars of all time. Fred Astaire, Judy Garland, Lena Horne, Gene Kelly, both. Jangles Robinson, all of them expertly showcased by equally great songwriters, choreographers, arrangers, orchestrators, designers, and supporting cast members, as you mentioned. The people that played all the supporting parts were just as genius as Judy Garland was. You mentioned Thelma Ritter before, or just look at the cast for the Harvey Girls. It's a really enjoyable movie. I would not say it's a great movie, but when you look at the cast, you have Judy Garland and Marjorie Maine and Angela Lansbury and Ray Bolger, that depth of talent is part of what I love about these movies. And a lot of them went along with the studio. You would see an MGM movie and you would get this array of stars. You would see a Fox movie. You would get these supporting players. A lot of the fun of going to the movies was picking out, oh, that's Ned Sparks. And even just talking about Wizard of Oz... Talk mm -hmm. about a collection of talent. You have the greatest vaudeville stars, Broadway stars of all time, collected together to support Judy Garland in that movie. I'm afraid there's no denying I'm just a dandelion, a fate I don't deserve. I'd be brave as a blizzard. I'd be gentle as a lizard. I'd be clever as a gizzard. If the wizard is a wizard who will serve... Then I'm sure to get a brain, a heart, a home, the knife. 
it's quite amazing that we get to see these great stars, mostly from the 20s and the 30s, doing their thing sort of at the prime of their talent. Well, you get to have someone like Billy Burke, who plays Glinda. Exactly. Talk about luxury casting. This was someone <laughs> who was married to Florence Ziegfeld and was a big star in the 30s. Yeah, it was amazing. Let's move on now to talk about the differences between the movie musical and the stage musical. We've touched on some of those already, which I think will lead us to some of the things that we don't like so much about movie musicals. But to hear that part of the conversation, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait till the next episode of Broadway Nation, when Albert and I will return with more on why we love, hate movie musicals. A show. That is really a show Sends you out With a kind of a glow And you say As you go on your way That's entertainment Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Admit we're a hit and we'll go on from there. We played a charade that was lighter than air. A good old-fashioned affair. As we sing this finale, we hope it was up your alley. No death like you get in Macbeth. No ordeal like the end of Camille. This goodbye brings a tear to the eye. The world is the stage. The stage is a world of Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.